0: Let's all grab our seats. I need Diane Vaughn to get in here. All right, are we all here. Hey, Lauren, will you do me a favor and close that door there? Thank you. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 or 10. Where is, it, where is it, 9? I think I put the wrong scripture in the. 9.35 is what we want to start at. So several people told me they wanted me to end by 9. So at 9 o'clock, the Holy Spirit will leave me. And there'll be no, no anointing left, so I'll just quit, I guess. Cause... You don't want to use it all up tonight. Oh, we want to save some for tomorrow. Yeah. Well, okay. The 936, so I think you can go to Ooh. <laughs> 935. Okay. I think there'll be something flowing behind me on the screen. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to forge ahead. Matthew 9.35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Tonight, I want to look at three things. First, the, the heart of Christ. Secondly, the eyes of Christ. And then thirdly, the mind of Christ. First, the heart of Christ. This text tells us that when Jesus looked at the multitudes, he was mad at them. Nope, doesn't say that. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he judged them. Nope. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he criticized them. Nope. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he denounced them. Nope, it doesn't say that. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, Jesus had compassion on them. His heart toward the lost was a heart of compassion. The Greek word for compassion used in this text is a word which means feelings of kindness, goodwill, and pity. It could mean pain, at the at the suffering of other people. And it's it includes the desire to relieve whatever is causing them pain. Therefore, compassion compels us to identify with others, to put ourselves in their place, if you will. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus did in the incarnation. You know, we talk about the incarnation, but when you think about what the incarnation actually was and is is that Jesus saw us from heaven, if you will, in our lossless, in our pain, in our suffering, and he became one of us. He put himself in our place in a literal sense. Literally entered this, this veil of tears, entered into human suffering, human pain. So we identify with those when we are compassionate, Jesus was compassionate, so he became one of us. Not only a man, but he became a man who hung on a cross as a sinner. So he identified not just with humanity in a theoretical, generic sense, but humanity in its fallen nature. Thirdly, compassion inspires action. Compassion means action that will alleviate whatever is causing the suffering. If you recall, well we'll turn there real quick, go, go to Luke chapter 10. Well known passage, we're going to be right right back to Matthew. But in Luke Jesus tells the story of, of what's called the Good Samaritan, the parable. And, and he says uh, in verse 30 of Luke 10 Jesus answered and said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and he was, who stripped him of clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says he had compassion, so he went to him. and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, or denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. The compassion was evidenced by the action. Now, the priest could have said, Yes, I felt sorry for the man, but he walked by. The Levite could have said, I felt sorry for the man, but he walked by. So who really felt sorry for the man? Who really pitied the man? Who really had compassion on the man? The man who helped him. The man who who went to him. True compassion is contrary to to sentimentalism. Sentimentalism. It is very easy to love humanity while hating your neighbor. There's an old joke that's been around the church for a long time, but the Anglican vicar said, I love the church. It's just Christians I can't stand. (laughs) Is it not true? I like what Chesterton Chesterton said, said. He said, God told us to love our enemies and to love our neighbors, because usually they're the same people. <laughs> but it's true. So the, the, the evidence of compassion is not a, a, a general feeling of goodwill toward humanity or even toward the church. It is concrete action to alleviate need. And... and Compassion, therefore, is directed toward those in need. In need. But the point I want to make here is that it's that it's directed toward those in need, even if their need is self-imposed. Now, I I don't know about you, but I know some people that love animals more than people. Do you know anybody like this? Now, you see these commercials on TV, you know, the shivering dog. The mangled cat, you know, like, please give, you know, <laughs> pulls at your heartstrings, right? And I actually think, you know, cruelty to animals is terrible. I think we should support those causes. The, the, the problem is, where's all the commercials about the babies that are being aborted? The women that come into the clinics and they're literally on the street because no one, they're being forced to get an abortion. Where's the commercials for them? And I know people who love animals don't treat people very well. Well, how do we account for this phenomenon? Well, there may be several reasons, there may be very personal reasons with individuals, but there, I think the one reason is this: is that we see animals as victims. You see, they're not responsible for their plight. They're taken advantage of. so they've been victimized, and so we, we feel pity for the victim. Now, you see a commercial about a shivering dog, but what if you saw a commercial about a shivering homeless man? I can assure you, many Christians would say it's his own fault. Yeah. It's his own fault. Well, let me tell you something it's always our own fault. Because as human beings, you and I are moral agents, responsible for our actions and our choices. Now, you may have been victimized. I believe I've been victimized by people. But I am responsible for my response to how I'm treated. Hear me? You hear me? In that sense, I am not a victim. And so we must understand that compassion doesn't stop and say, oh, well, if it really wasn't your fault, I'll help you. Because when it comes to gospel salvation, it is everybody's fault because the gospel is addressing the issue of individual accountability and sin. Are you hearing me? You don't walk up to somebody and say, oh, I love you because you're you're really stupid and don't know that you've sinned. Of course not. The people are lost, the word of God tells us, because they want to be lost. Men loved darkness more than light, Jesus said. Did he not? Yes, he did. Yet right before that, he says, God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten. What world? The world that loves darkness more than light. The world that is opposed to God, the, the world that is choosing sin, the world that's choosing ugliness over beauty. That's the world God loves. He doesn't love some abstract theoretical world that's really fundamentally good. He loves the fallen world. It's only fallen people that need the gospel. It's sinners that need the gospel. It's the ugly people that need the gospel. And yet those are the people that we can so easily be repelled by. Those are the people we draw back from. Those are the ones that need the gospel. Jesus' response to the multitude was not judgment or criticism or condemnation. He came not to condemn the world, he says, but that the world might be saved. Neither did Christ recoil from the crowds in fear. You know, he looked at them and he said, they're sheep, sheep are harmless. He did not see a pack of wolves. He saw sheep that needed a shepherd. He was not repulsed by their sin, He was not afraid of their diseases. He did not flee to the mountains and set up a monastery for spiritual elites nor a sanctuary for Christian cowards. That's not what Jesus did. Right after, in Matthew, it says that Jesus looked at the multitudes with compassion and exhorts his disciples to pray. Immediately, it says in chapter 10, he called the 12 to him and sent them out. That's what he did. He started commissioning his people to go to the very people he had compassion on. So Jesus' heart is a heart of compassion. Secondly, let's talk about Jesus' eyes. Let's talk about his eyes. What did Jesus see? Here in Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus looked, he had compassion because they were weary. I'm reading the New King James. Weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. So when Jesus looked at the lost, he saw that they were faint. They were weary. The word of God tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And without that word, men are spiritually hungry. They are spiritually famished, um, There's a proverb that says, to the hungry man, even a bitter thing tastes sweet. Men feed on that which is unwholesome because they're starving. I watched the movie recently with my wife about uh, people that were basically forced because of their situation to cannibalize one another. Out Out at sea for months. And when one of their comrades died, Instead of throwing the body overboard, they ate the body. They were driven to that act because they were starving. And the truth is, people are starving. Now, they may not know it, but they're starving. And it explains why people feed on things that are so unwholesome. Because, in fact, they're faint and they're starving. Because they're not feeding on the Word of God. Or should I say, they're not feeding on Christ who's the bread of life? Secondly, they're scattered abroad. And and without a shepherd, they have no guidance, so they just wander. They're just wandering around. if, If you read news, if you read blogs, if you read what's going on out there, it is amazing how scattered people are. I read an article today about all the new genders there are. I mean, the, the, the amount of spiritual, moral, and intellectual confusion that's in, invaded our society is astounding. That people cannot understand a basic difference between a man and a woman anymore. And that's just one example. So, people have no guidance. They don't know where to turn. So, they're just making up their own philosophies. They're picking a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Islam, and a little bit of Buddhism, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They throw in a little humanism, a little scientism, a little secularism, a little relativism, and they mush, mush it all up, and they have a religion. They have a faith. They're lost in the truest sense of the word. They're lost in moral relativism. They're sinking in a sea of skepticism. And they're blown about by every wind of doctrine. They're truly scattered about. Thirdly, Jesus says that without a shepherd, these uh, people are in danger. The lost are in danger. As you know, the function of a, of a shepherd in the Bible is one of his functions, in addition to feeding, one of his functions is to protect, right? Right? Jesus talks about the good shepherd in John 10. He says that when the good shepherd sees the wolves coming, he stands and he fights the wolves. He'll even lay down his life. In other words, the good shepherd will let the wolves eat him so they don't eat the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. Well, the lost are like sheep with no shepherd, which means they are vulnerable and they are in danger. They are in danger. The Bible tells us that the, the destruction for which they are headed is not simply physical or temporal, but they are in danger of spiritual and eternal damnation. The Bible is clear on its teaching about the afterlife, that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And the Bible tells us that those, those who re- reject Christ, those who die without Christ, will spend eternity separated from Christ. This is truly to be in danger. Is this what we see when we look at the multitudes? Do we see what Jesus saw? Thirdly, Jesus gives counsel to his disciples. First, his counsel is hopeful. Jesus said the harvest is plenteous. Jesus didn't say I'm sending you out and you might find an ear of corn. You might find one or two. If you look really hard and you work at this for years and years and years, you might be able to pluck one ear. He doesn't say that. He says the harvest is plenteous. The need is great. And that's actually good news. I mean, if the, if the goal is to win sinners to Christ and there's a whole lot of sinners, that's good. No, I'm serious. If everybody's, everybody you, you know is saved, you can't, well, they're saved. You can't lead them to Christ. The harvest is plenteous. And in, in another text in John, he says, he, t- he tells his, his disciples, lift up your eyes and look because the harvest is not only plenteous, it's ripe. It's ripe. Now, can you imagine a a farmer who would get up every morning and look out the window, look at the field, say to his wife and kids, sorry, no food, we can't eat today. Next morning, he gets up, looks out the window, looks at the fields, sorry, no harvest, can't eat today. looks out the window and the harvest is plenteous and the harvest is ripe but he's too lazy to go out the door and pluck it so his family starves but he blames the field he blames the harvest Jesus doesn't blame the harvest he says the harvest is plentiful and the harvest is ripe well that's good news That's an optimistic word from Jesus. His second word is a realistic word. The laborers are few. You see, the problem wasn't the harvest. The problem is the lack of people that will go into the field and pluck the harvest. Compared to the need, which is plenteous, great, the workers are few. But there's a lesson we need to learn here is that the work of reaching the lost is not the task of a few gifted evangelists, preachers or pastors. Those in leadership will always be a small minority compared to the great numbers of actual Christians. And just as the harvest is plenteous, so must be the workers. The Great Commission can be fulfilled, and the Great Commission will be fulfilled only when the great mass of professing Christians become witnessing Christians. Let me say it again. The Great Commission will only be fulfilled when the great mass of professing Christians become witnessing Christians. Thank God for evangelists. I thank God for the men through history that have had that gift and have led multitudes to Christ. I thank God for them. But it is not the task only of a few. It is the task of all God's people because the harvest is so great. There are people that you know that, that, that I do not know. There are people that you, you see on a regular basis that I will never meet. I will never have an opportunity to share the gospel with them, but you do. That's why the commission is for all believers. Thirdly, Jesus' counsel is theocentric. How do you like that for a big word, Joe? Theocentric. In light of the great harvest, Jesus counsels his disciples to first pray. That is, he turns them away from the task and away from themselves and toward God. If you just look at the task, it's overwhelming. If you just look at yourself, you'll probably get depressed. (laughs) But if you look at God first, get happy in God, get happy in Jesus, revel in the gospel that you have already received, revel in the relationship that you already have, as Peter said, whom having not seen, yet you are filled with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Right? Knowing Christ, reveling in Christ, reveling in the gospel, the reality of the gospel, we look to God. I don't believe that the key to the Great Commission is simply better programs or better slogans. I think the great need of the hour is for Christ's church to call on God, the great Lord of the harvest. And to plead with God to move the hearts of men toward the lost. Notice what I said. Are you listening? Yeah. To move the hearts of men toward the lost. Not to move the hearts of the lost first. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. What, is, what we need is for people to be moved to go and labor. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for the church. Because Jesus says, it's not that there's no harvest. It's not as if there's no need. It's not as if the gospel doesn't save anymore. It saved me. It can save anybody. The gospel still saves. The blood of Jesus still conquers sin. The tomb is still empty. Amen. Amen. But you see, God's church has to be moved by God. So we're told here by Jesus to pray to the Father for labors, to to beseech the Almighty to give to the church of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the eyes of Christ. This is the application of this message. We must feel, because as Joe rightly said, we are governed more by what we feel than what we think. We must feel the heart of Christ toward the lost. And when we begin to feel toward the lost as Jesus does, then we will begin to see the lost as Jesus did. And you see, if we don't, if we don't have the the heart of Jesus, if we don't have the eyes of Jesus, then we'll not have the mind of Jesus, and we will not obey the command of Jesus. There was a study that came out years ago, I've referred to it before in other sermons, but you've all heard of Willow Creek Church, right? One of the largest churches in America, one of the first what they call mega-churches. Um, one of the most successful churches in, in the country and really a, uh, a leader in many ways to, to help other churches grow. In 2007, they came out with a study. They actually commissioned a study to evaluate their church and kind of the church in America. Um... And the study called Reveal is actually very revealing. Because one of the things it revealed was that churches were getting larger because other churches were getting smaller. In other words, a whole generation of men had been trained to grow the church by bringing in, other, by bringing in Christians but not by winning the lost. And so, although you had large churches in America, mega churches in America, their studies showed that if you, if you actually graft the growth of the kingdom, the kingdom doesn't grow when somebody comes into a church. The kingdom grows when somebody goes from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The kingdom grows when somebody is born again, when somebody is saved. What their study showed is that the the kingdom growth in America had plateaued for years. So my question is, why? Does the gospel not save anymore? Is there no need anymore? Well, of course not. Does God not love the lost anymore? Did he stop loving the lost once he saved me? Did he stop loving the lost when he saved you? Well, of course not. Jesus is so wise. And that's why he said the first thing to do is to pray to the Lord for the workers. It's about the the workers and their willingness to go into the field. I believe the gospel still saves people. Amen? And tomorrow you're going you're gonna to hear Diane's testimony of gospel transformation, which is my testimony, and many of you have the same testimony of how the gospel really does save, really does tram- transform lives. And that gospel is still the same gospel today, still as powerful today as the day it saved you. That's the thing we have to remember still as powerful today as the day that Peter got up and preached the first Christian sermon on Pentecost. It's the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. It's the same good news. Amen? So let me conclude simply by saying, why don't we obey the Bible? Let's do something really radical. (laughs) I'm completely serious. Let's not nod at sermons. Let's obey the word. Would you commit with me to pray in obedience to this word from Jesus? Would you, would you commit to pray for laborers for the field? And if you, you will commit to that, will you stand? Say, so I'm going to commit to pray for laborers to go into the field. You can take a, a few minutes every day or every, whenever you do your prayer time. Put it on your prayer list. I'm going to pray for laborers to go into the field. And if, I believe that if we will do this, or should I say, if, if you will do this, you're going to see something really radical happen. Because what will begin to happen is your eyes will begin to be opened. Opened and your heart will begin to change. And all of a sudden, you're going to realize one moment, I'm in the field, and there's a pluck of corn. I better get the corn. Because, you see, you can't pray for laborers without it affecting you. So if we commit to this, then we will see, I believe, God... Honor this prayer. If Jesus tells us to pray something, will he not answer that? So let's, let's make it a priority. Not something we do once a month or once a year at a conference. A priority. Father, we thank you for the gospel, which is really thanking you for Jesus. Because... The gospel is about his person and his work. Lord, I pray for each one of us that our hearts and our minds, our eyes would be open to see, our hearts would be moved to care. And God, we do pray for laborers. We pray for one another. We pray for ourselves. We pray for the success of the gospel in our sphere of influence. We pray for the success of the gospel, Lord, in our field. We pray for the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our sphere of influence. Lord, I recall when Isaiah stood before you, and you said, Who will go for me? And Isaiah responded, Here am I, Lord. (coughs) Send me. I ask, dear Lord, that you would make that our prayer. Send me. Send my wife. Send my children. Send my friends. Send us, God into the field. And we ask for a plenteous harvest. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, tomorrow morning, 8.30.